We're combining all the best old school wisdom with all the top new school methods to bring you the optimal way to coach and play the great game of baseball. This is the 80-20 Baseball Masterclass with Coach Bo. Welcome to the show. Coach Bo here. We got a good one today. This week's episode, we are going into the interview format. I got an interview, part of an interview that I'm going to share with you that I believe will be very helpful when it comes to dealing with players, but also the players' parents. When you coach youth baseball, and when I say youth, that's all the way through high school. College and professional baseball is run very differently. Parents are not involved, and if they are, it doesn't last very long. But in the high school and youth baseball, which this podcast is designed for, specifically for youth baseball players are a package deal with the parents. Sometimes that's only one parent that's involved. Sometimes it's both parents that are involved with things. They show up to all the games and they're involved with the goings on of their kid and their youth sports, in this case, baseball. So the players and the parents are usually almost always a package deal. Again, this isn't something that gets talked about at all at the college professional level because it just doesn't exist, but definitely for the youth baseball and high school baseball, dealing with parents and getting parents and players and co- the coaching staff to be a cohesive unit, to be on the same page. This is something that doesn't get discussed a lot, I think, in the baseball community, but can make or break a team culture. One thing that does get talked about, and I'm so fired up to hear this being talked about more and more, that is building a better team culture, building up better players as people. And as part of this goal, to achieve this goal, we need to make sure that the families, not just the players, but the families are on board and they're, it's a synergy amongst the three parts to the equation, the coaching staff, the player, and the parent. Now, some of you might be saying, especially if you coach with older players, you might be saying right now, Coach Bo, I don't want to deal with the parents. I want the kid to come to me. And I want the parents, if they have complaints or things to talk about, I want them to go through their kid to me. And now that might be a good strategy. I'm not saying don't do that. What's going to happen on the back end, a lot of times is the parents are talking with other parents. There's resentment that gets communicated in kind of the shadows up in the back of the bleachers. And it can be very, very destructive when it comes to the team culture. Also, worst case, what can happen, and I've seen happen before, is the parents all gang up together. They all group together to essentially get the coach fired. In fact, I've seen multiple high school coaches get fired because the parents all banded together and behind the scenes were able to push forward the firing of the coach or the removal of the coach. And here's the thing, dealing with the kids and the complaints straightforward is one thing, but making sure that the ble- the communication and the culture with the parents that are sitting there talking for two hours, three hours at every single game, sometimes in small groups, sometimes just one parent to another parent, sometimes in a larger group, that's where that gossip, that negative discussion, the resentment starts to manifest. And so we are going to talk about some strategies today that can help not eliminate any of this because we can't change everybody, right? But the things that we're going to discuss in part one of the interview with coach Tim Murray today are things that we can use to help at least shape our paradigm and give us a plan, at least a template at a minimum to handling the players and their parents in a healthier way to get everybody on board, to get everybody working together. So we'll get into that interview today. Last week, we talked about in episode 90, the Tony Gwynn quote. If you haven't listened to episode 90, go back. The Tony Gwynn 
quote, I am not a guess hitter. Tony Gwynn said, hey, he's not a guess hitter. He doesn't guess up there. He's not guessing. He's looking for a good pitch in a good area to hit. He's on time for the fastball. And we'll get into that specific comment on time for the fastball in just a minute. Also, Ted Williams, quote, I have said that a good hitter can hit a pitch that is over the plate three times better than a great hitter can hit a questionable pitch in a tough spot. The greatest hitter living cannot hit bad pitches good, quote, unquote, Ted Williams. You're only as good as the pitch that you swing at. And that's what his point to that was. We also talked last week. We finished up last week, part four of the summer offseason, this time of year offseason plan. Number one, get stronger, get faster, get more mobile. Youth players don't really have a tough time staying mobile. But the more I think about this and over the last couple of weeks, I've been thinking about this and kind of assessing where our society is with the youth The youth are sitting down a lot more now than they did 30, 40, and definitely 100 years ago. We all know that. And that's not necessarily a terrible thing. It's just something that we need to be careful with in terms of athleticism and sports, sitting down. And I had a discussion on an email with a listener. You know who you are. And we were discussing this topic of players sitting down a little bit more and being on the computer, playing video games, TV, et cetera. We know that's definitely a thing that has come about and and the hours spent sitting down for kids has increased dramatically over the decades. And so it's something that I think we need to be careful with now. And that is the mobility and the flexibility of kids where I think 50 years ago, 30 years ago, 100 years ago, you didn't really have to discuss and talk about mobility and flexibility because kids were playing so much. They were doing so many different activities that they were literally bending and you know falling and moving in so many different directions throughout the day because they did so much activity and they were active and outside doing things that you didn't really need to talk to them about hip mobility and hip flexibility and things like that. But I do think that now, and also coupled with just the overall diet in society, the nutrition of society and and kids being a little bit heavier now than they were in the past, not all, but if kind of on average, a little bit heavier, I think that that plays into the need for us to focus a little bit on mobility and flexibility. So we talked about that last week, and we're going to break that down as we move forward. But I thought it was something interesting because if I was doing this podcast, not that podcasts were even around 30 years ago, if I was doing this podcast in the late 80s, I wouldn't tell any 12-year-old coach to focus on mobility and flexibility with their players to isolate that as a strategy or a goal or an action step within their practice plan or their off-season training routine. I would just say, go do these activities, go do these drills, and the kid's lifestyle is going to take care of the rest of it. You didn't really need to stretch a lot when you're 11 years old, but I think that's changed a little bit. I'm not saying we need to go full-on 30-minute yoga sessions and stretch like a gymnast and things like that, but something to keep in mind. But we did talk about getting stronger, getting faster, and staying mobile. We talked about getting stronger, getting faster, staying mobile are two of the off-season summer plan. Get a lot of pitches, see a lot of pitches, make a lot of swings, hit off the tee, see as many pitches as you can, get the kids hitting as much as possible in the off-season, rest their arms a little bit, depending on how much they threw this last season. Also, we talked about getting a lot of ground balls from different angles, a lot of ground balls, infield, outfield, ground balls, a few line drives, but a lot of ground balls. And then we talked about raising baseball IQ without actually having the players play. So go back and listen to episode 90 if you haven't already. And now for episode 91, we're going to discuss Gary Sheffield. I listened to a short video clip of Gary Sheffield discussing his hitting approach and Gary Sheffield, 509 home runs. He was a solid major league hitter for many years. I believe his career was like 22 years, 20 years, somewhere in there. So he played two decades or plus and was a very productive hitter. And as the listeners of this show that have been with us, for a while. And I know some of you have joined on. I get emails from coaches that are just joining on. They're getting on board with 8020 Baseball here. They've, they've discovered the podcast with 
in the last month or two, and they're going back and they're binging on all the episodes, which I highly recommend because each episode has information, has tips, has strategies that will help no matter when you listen to it. So they're not necessarily time sensitive. We do talk about some things going on in Major League Baseball, college baseball, high school baseball, and the baseball community that might be a little more pertinent for that particular time, which the episode came out. But each episode has things, have strategies, tips, action steps that you can use as a coach to be better no matter when you listen to it. So if you've been listening, you know that Gary Sheffield hit a home run that ended up in my hands. I caught a home run by Gary Sheffield. In fact, it's the only ball I've ever caught that came off a bat in a major league game. And I've been to hundreds and hundreds of major league baseball games, minor league baseball games, college baseball games. And I've only caught one ball off the bat when I was in the stands. And that was a Gary Sheffield home run off AJ Burnett. AJ Burnett threw a 94 mile an hour fastball, left it middle up. Gary Sheffield hammered the pitch into the left field bleachers at Dodger Stadium. And the final score was one to nothing. I still have video on VHS recording, VHS recording video of it being the only run of the game. It was the only highlight to show other than Kevin Brown, the old Dodgers pitcher. In fact, Kevin Brown was the first hundred million dollar baseball player. And Kevin Brown, one of my favorite pitchers of all time, just because he was competitive out there and just really battled. Kevin Brown had a no hitter into the sixth inning in that game. And I believe the leadoff hitter for the Marlins Castillo hit an infield base hit to break up the no hitter. And there was only a few hits total for the Marlins in the game. And the only run was Gary Sheffield's home run that ended up in my hand. So Gary Sheffield the other day in this video said his hitting approach, be on time for the heater. He says, be on time for the heaters, be on time for the fastball. And by the way, I'm supporting this hitting approach. I think this is a great three-step hitting approach. Now I add a step in for him because I know Gary Sheffield over all these years, I watched him play very closely and I'm going to add in a part here, a step that he followed along with and was part of his approach for all the years in the major leagues. One of the biggest reasons he was so successful. Here's Gary Sheffield's three-step hitting approach. Number one, swing at good hitters pitches with less than two strikes. So with less than two strikes, he got his pitch to swing at. Number two, and this is what he talked about in the video, he was always on time for the fastball. He said, I'm not going to be beat by the fastball. I'm not going to have the fastball thrown by me. And then he said he liked to keep it simple in terms of off-speed pitches. And he wanted to know what the favorite out pitch of the pitcher was. He wanted to know the pitcher's favorite out pitch. And I thought the simplicity of this plan is something that we can all learn from. He kept it simple up there. You're talking milliseconds, milliseconds to decide to swing or not swing, much less hit the ball. The average pitch at any level is between four tenths of a second and five tenths of a second. That's how long the pitch takes to go from the pitcher's hand to the plate. And the hitter has a lot less time to decide than that to swing or not to swing, because obviously you can't wait until the pitch is in the catcher's glove. And then he said, I always want to know what the pitcher's favorite out pitch is. The out pitch is their two strike pitch. Typically, it could be the 0-2, 1-2, 2-2 pitch. Typically 3-2, that starts getting a little bit different. But that 0-2, 1-2 pitch, what is the out pitch? Do they go to a breaking ball? Do they like to go to a curveball most often? Do they like to go to a changeup? Do they use a slider? He didn't want to know every single pitch the guy threw. He didn't want to know every single pitch he threw in all the different counts because that's really not super predictable at the end of the day. And it also goes against Tony Gwynn, his philosophy of not being a guest hitter. Tony Gwynn 
been one of the greatest hitters of all time. And so you don't want to be a guest hitter. You want to be on time to hit the fastball. You want to swing at pitches. So let me back up here. Here was his three-step hitting approach, which made Gary Sheffield one of the best hitters of the last 40 years. He swung at good hitters pitches. He swung at pitches that he could hit hard with less than two strikes. He was always on time for the fastball. And as many of you know that followed Gary Sheffield or watched Gary Sheffield hit over his career, he was always on time for the fastball. He very rarely got beat by a fastball. He might be out in front of some breaking balls, good pitches that the pitchers made early in the count, but he was never, almost never behind the fastball. So he swung at good hitters pitches. He swung at pitches with less than two strikes that he could hit hard. He was on time for the fastball and he knew what the pitcher's favorite out pitch was. Was it a slider? Was it a curveball? How often did he throw it? Or did he not have an out pitch? At the youth level, did he just throw fastballs the whole time? So he knew that. So he knew he wanted to get a good pitch in a good area with less than two strikes and he did not want to get beat by the fastball early in the count. Then later in the count with two strikes, 0-2-1-2, if he got to that situation, he knew if there was a tendency for that pitcher and a lot of pitchers as you move up, especially when you get to that 11-12, definitely in the high school and 13-14 in the junior high, I should say, and in the high school, pitchers want to go to that out pitch and it's typically a breaking ball, but now you're seeing things like fastballs elevated. But at the end of the day, he knew when he got to two strikes, he was conscious of the pitcher's favorite out pitch if they had one. All right. Now we're going to get into part one of the interview I did with Coach Tim Murray. Coach Tim Murray coached out in Southern California. He was the Orange County, Orange County in California. He was the Orange County Coach of the Year in 2016 and 2016. He led his team in a 10-year span. He led his team to the Southern California Championship game two different times. First time was at Dodger Stadium, and they lost a close game to a very good team led by James Caprillion, who's now in the Major League pitching for the athletics. And in 2016, he led his team back to the Southern California championship game, this time against a top 20 nationally ranked team, Redondo High School. But more importantly, what makes Coach Murray stand out? What made him stand out to me when I worked with him and observed him and, and coached along and coached against him was how he dealt with the parents and got all the families and parents on board. Now, he coached in an area where parents got very involved in, in the game and they got very involved in their kids playing career and their baseball. They got very involved. Orange County, the Irvine area, parent involvement, which is a good thing. They're very involved. That it can also be a, a double-edged sword. They had, he had a lot of parent support and a lot of parents there at the games and a lot of parents involved, which made a lot of areas of the program very good. But another challenge that that presented was that he had to deal with a lot more parent involvement that wasn't always healthy. There was stuff going on in the stands and parents talking with other parents when they weren't happy about playing time and, and that sort of thing that just happens everywhere, but definitely a higher concentration in that area. Here's a story. I coached with another guy, great coach, and he's still coaching, really good coach. And he's also a teacher in that area. And he showed up to practice a little late one day because he had a parent-student meeting after school. The parent wanted to sit down and discuss the student's grade with him. And when he told me this, initially I said, oh man, well, what kind of grade did you give him? Do you fail him? Is there any way to work with the student? Can they do anything to make up the grade to, so they don't fail your class? He said, no, Bo, I didn't fail the student. The student got an A minus in my class. And I said, the parent wanted to have a discussion about the grade when it was an A minus. And he said, yeah. And I go, oh man, the parent didn't want the minus sign next to the A. And I said, ooh. 
I wanted to share that story with you to give you some context as to the parents, kind of the general parent involvement in the area that Coach Tim Murray coached and worked in for so many years. So Tim had great parent involvement, great contributions from the parents over the years, but he also had more involvement, which led to some other things that came up, and he'll discuss that in our interview part one here today. So let us get into the interview. Keep in mind as we go through this interview, you'll hear Coach Murray talk about strategies he used in youth baseball and in high school baseball. The thing is with the high school baseball for you youth coaches, almost all of what he shares about dealing with parents at the high school level is usable for youth coaches. And the main idea, the main goal of this interview was to give coaches, youth coaches, high school coaches, a better paradigm for dealing with parents. All right, on to the interview. All right. I am here with Coach Tim Murray. Coach Tim and I have a history together as coaching, so I can vouch for him with all of you listeners that uh, he's one of the smartest coaches I've ever been around. And he's been in the game coaching for almost a quarter century now. I know he only looks like he's 25 years old, but he has been in the game coaching, just coaching alone for close to 25 years and definitely a lot more experience with baseball beyond that. So I'm excited to have you here, Tim. How you doing? I'm doing good. Well, I'm doing good. How you been? I've been good. Been good. Uh, All right. Excited to have you on, and I appreciate you taking the time. And I talked to you before we went went live here that the audience is a lot of you know we have coaches. I'm sure there's a professional coach or two that listen in college coaches and high school, but definitely a lot of youth coaches, and that's really where we're trying to aim to to serve and help the youth community. And before we get into questions, I'd like to just have you you know share with the listeners a little bit of a you know kind of a synopsis of your backstory with coaching and how you got to where you are now. Yeah, no problem. So I got into coaching more as a teacher first. I didn't play at a high level. I did play in high school. I tried to play in college, but wasn't quite good enough, but ended up spending a lot of time around youth baseball. In fact, one of my first coaching jobs was as a coach with the Placentia Mustangs organization, which is a travel ball team in Orange County and got into that. And I was just starting my teaching career. So pretty quickly, you know, some of the high school coaches around the area started asking me to come and help out. Started my high school coaching career at a school called Montclair High School, where I started teaching. Eventually came over to El Dorado High School and coached with a very good high school head coach, who was actually my head coach. Uh, you know him. His name's Steve Galati, and he's an excellent coach. And, uh, you know, I know, Bo, you went to the rival school, Esperanza, and you also played for a really good coach, legendary coach Mike Curran. And I learned a lot from Steve. I learned some things that would make me a successful coach. I also learned some things that I would try to do differently. Uh, from there, took a head job as the head baseball coach at Woodbridge High School in Irvine. And that is the school where I started my own head coaching career and spent about 10 years, almost a whole decade there as a head coach. In total, about 27 years coaching and teaching as well. And uh, Woodbridge is kind of the place I I would call my home as a baseball coach and uh, had to build a program that um, had some success, but not a lot. And when I left it, I hope I left it in in a better position. Eventually stepped down to go back and coach my son and did that for a few more years. Took him to Cooperstown and back to the organization, the travel ball team called the Placentia Mustangs. Built a little travel ball team of 12-year-olds that went to Cooperstown. And since then, my son decided that baseball wasn't his thing. So what are you going to do? Not for everybody. And uh, now I'm just teaching. Also made sure that Woodbridge High School Baseball has a great coach named Ryan Brucker, who's carrying on the program and doing a heck of a job. Maybe one day I'll come back and be his assistant. And then he can deal with all the problems that you're going to ask me about today. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I can just sit back and watch. <laughs> I'll tell you what, getting back into the game for you, it would be a huge plus for, for the baseball community to have somebody somebody like you, and not just because you're so intelligent when it comes to the game and the strategies, but how you relate to kids and build up and really make it fun for the kids. You're competitive. Your teams are always competitive, but the kids have fun. And, and whereas we're going to talk about today, you had part of one of the main things we're going to talk about today is how you just amazing, you were just so amazing with parents, youth coaches and high school coaches have always will have struggles with parents. College coaches don't have to deal with that. We talked about that before we went live here is college and pro coaches. They don't deal with that, but youth coaches and definitely high school coaches have that parental bridge to build and to that relationship to nurture. So we're going to talk about that, but I am going to put in a little plug here for Tim. He was the Orange County coach of the year in 2016, and he took his team Woodbridge in just in 10 years, a program that he really built up and he took it to two Southern California championship games. And the first one was at Dodger Stadium and he, he played a team. The pitcher for the other team was James Caprillion. And if you've been watching any baseball recently, he's in the major leagues pitching right now for the Oakland A's. So he went up against him. And then when I was coaching with you, we went to the Southern California championship game in 2016. We had a great group. We had, man, it's fun to watch these guys. A lot of them have since now graduated or finishing up their college careers, but quite a few college players came out of that. And I see the relationships that you've continued with them. And that says a lot because I know high school coaches, when kids graduate, they don't, they're just, they sever that tie with the school, uh, with the program because they had, they didn't have a, they didn't feel a connection with their coach, but that's definitely not the case with you. And so you've had a lot of success with the, you know, on the scoreboard, but I'll tell you what, the, the success you've had with, you know, working with players and building connections and how I watched you with kids, it really was awesome to learn. And I want to share that with the, I'm hoping you can share that with the, the listeners today. And I know we kind of focus in on, on a couple of topics here and uh, we'll go from there and see how it shakes out. How's that sound? Absolutely. Absolutely. I appreciate the uh, the kind words. Part of uh, the success I had at Woodbridge was due to some pretty darn good assistant coaches as well, including you, Bo. And, you know, when you build a program, it's more than just you. You have to get a lot of people involved. And I think that's a big part of what, you know, you want to ask me about today because you can't do anything by yourself and you have to be able and willing to include parents in sort of your program to get the most out of them and to get the most out of the players as well. So I appreciate you saying I did a great job. And Well, I'll tell you what, I left off some, I mean, I didn't even get into your El Dorado days where El Dorado is a nationally known baseball program and all your coaching there. And so, I mean, we could go on and on. And I know you had success with the youth baseball and the travel baseball. And so we could definitely go on, but I like to kind of get into the, the nuts and bolts of working with parents right now. You know, I know youth coaches, they, there's, I get emails sometimes dealing with parents and trying to even out the playing time and, you know, complaints. There's a whole, a whole myriad things of uh, that can, that come up with parents. First question for you, what would be the two or three main or key things that you do as a coach or you would recommend a coach do to keep parents content? What would you recommend? What are a couple main needle movers to helping the parents feel content? Not always happy, not always like they got their way, but feeling content. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it differs at the youth level and the high school level. I've done both. So let me, let me kind of give you a little bit of ideas at the high school level. I do think that there is sort of a little bit of distance uh, that you have 
have to sort of create between yourself and the parents. And when I say distance, I mean, you're still working with them, right? But they have to understand sort of certain ground rules. So I would always open up at the high school level with a parent meeting. And I do it really before school even started in the fall. I would sit down and I would invite all the parents and especially I'd kind of make the freshman parents go because, you know, one of the things I would do is I'd say, look, you're new to the program. And if your son wants to be a part of this, I need you to be involved. And so that was kind of one of the ways I would encourage them to, to attend that first parent meeting because, you know, sometimes the returning parents won't always uh, want to be a part of it. They've already heard kind of what you're going to say and things like that. But it's those new first year parents that you want to get in and you want to make sure you establish some simple ground rules. So that's how I would do it at the high school level. And I'd always start open up with a parent meeting. And when that parent meeting would happen, I'd be really honest with them. And when I say honest, I would just, I wouldn't be talking about their kids specifically, but I'd be talking about just some do's and don'ts. And, and some of the don'ts that you have to emphasize are some of the reasons why they are going to call you. They're going to email you. And it's usually going to revolve around playing time or position. And those tend to be the two main concerns parents have. Sometimes it's where their kid bats in the lineup. But in all honesty, as long as they're in the lineup, most parents aren't going to call you, right? It's when they're not in the lineup. Mm -hmm. So it's usually going to revolve around what position my son plays and how much my son plays. So you got to set those guidelines up front. So right away, I would just say, look, if you want to talk to me about anything regarding your son, we have an open you know, line of communication, but there are two no-nos. And if you bring up parent playing time or if you bring up position with me, those are coaching decisions. That's up to me to write the names on the lineup card and decide where the players are going to play. Those are coaching issues. Now, other issues that you might have, like your son's grades, or if he's got a girlfriend that you're concerned about, or who he's hanging out with on campus, or, you know, my son's having trouble in his math class. I got an open line of communication on this. So you tell them those things up front. And so they know that you're on their side. You're there. You're a teacher first, right? You're not just a coach. You're there to help educate their son. You're there to help their son grow up, but don't cross the line. And you try to be upfront with them about that. Now, it doesn't always work, but at least you've said everything up front, right? Yep. I'll usually meet with the parents again right before the season starts. So I'll do it once in the fall. And then, you know, baseball is a spring sport. I'll do it once before the season and start. Both of the meetings also involve fundraising and we've got to get the fundraising starting started right away because fundraising is going to be the way you go out and hire your coaches. Right. Based on the fundraising we were able to do at Woodbridge, uh, we ran a snack bar. Uh, we were able to run some tournament. We were able to raise enough money to hire some good assistant coaches like yourself. And if you don't have that fundraising, then the parents need to understand that if they don't help the fundraising, then you're not going to be able to hire the best assistant coach. You know, and what they want is they want a program to have really good coaches, right? Coaches that they can trust to work with their kids. For example, when I brought you in, I didn't really have any parents questioning me about how many pitches a kid threw because you were really good with pitch count or how many innings someone was throwing. We didn't have a lot of arm injuries during the time you were working with our pitchers. That's a key component as well. But you got to make sure you have good assistance around you in order to also keep those parents content, which is kind of what your question was. If you're trying to do everything by yourself, it's not going to always work out so well. So set the guidelines early. Uh, make sure you have good people around you in the program and be honest with the parent up front. For youth, this is where it's a little different 
different. Youth coaches, you got a bigger challenge because the kids are younger. You know, not playing can really affect them in a way where I would say it can kind of turn them off to the sport. And so parents tend to be a little more defensive when their kids aren't playing at, say, 11 or 12 because it's kind of who they are. It's kind of their makeup of what kind of kid they're going to be. You know, I had a parent once tell me that, you know, they really, really liked me until I coached their kid. And the reason they said that was because once I started coaching their kid, their kid wasn't getting as much playing time. And so they, that kid just sort of didn't like baseball anymore, kind of went into a little bit of a depression a little bit. And as a youth coach, you're the one who's sort of got to deal with that. And I tried to talk to the kid quite a bit. We had a lot of, you know, after game meetings. So one way you can help that is to do things with them outside of the baseball field. Mm -hmm. My advice to youth coaches is to do the same type of a thing at the beginning of the year, but make it more about like a pool party for the boys or do more things where you're going to like a pizza you know, place where the kids can sort of have that social aspect. It's not all about the baseball field for kids at a young age. It's more about, you know, fitting in with a group, belonging to a group and the way the coach uses outside of baseball to bring that group together. I will tell you this, as a, as a high school coach, I would never have a beer with a parent. It's, it's a no-no. It's something mm-hmm. you don't do. As a youth coach, I'm having lots of beers with parents <laughs> <laughs> because that's when you're going to get honesty. That's when a parent's going to tell you what they really think. And they will. If they have a few drinks, they'll probably be more likely. And it also gives you a chance to sort of diffuse a situation you know, later on down the road You think about it in terms of your friends, right? When you go out with your friends, sometimes you may not be friends with someone, but then a few drinks later, you're all of a sudden better friends. So youth coaches just have to understand that it's a different dynamic. So again, as a high school coach, I wouldn't have a beer with a parent. As a youth coach, I think it's mandatory (laughs) because then they tell you what they really are thinking. And you want to know that because in the end, you're not just coaching the Placentia Mustangs, for example, right? You're coaching kids that are still developing who they're going to be. If there's something that they're struggling with. It may be bigger than just not hitting well with two strikes or not being able to get the bunt down or not being able to throw strikes in a crucial like moment in the game. Once you kind of know that, from the kids, then you can be a better coach. So there you go. Yeah, I think you hit some really good recommendations. The parent meeting and parent meetings, I think is something now, if we wanted to kind of talk about how what would work for both, like you said, high school and then youth, I know a lot more of my listeners are, are youth. We definitely have high school. And like we said earlier, college and pro sprinkled in there. The parent meeting, transparency, honesty. I like how you added a two-pronged approach to if you're working with the high school, you got to have a little more distance. Youth coaches get together or youth coaches and working with the parents, get a little more intimate with maybe a beer or pizza or have a dinner for the parents. You hit something I thought is really key. And parents gripe about things or parents complain about things. But just like all of us, sometimes our communication lacks clarity. So there there might be a root issue that you need to find and discover and get to. And sometimes parents aren't as upfront and as transparent with the coaches. So being able to sit down, have a beer with them, and then, okay, that's the real root issue of that. And then obviously, if you don't know the root, we don't know the root issues of whatever, wherever the parents and players are coming from, we can't, you know, inevitably solve the real problems. So I think kind of getting to know them a little bit better. And also, you know, they see you as more than just a a person in a, in a baseball hat and a baseball shirt and out there coaching, they see you as a human being. And and I think that can go a long ways. 
I used to work for years. I worked, as you know, I worked with, you know, inner city, hardcore gang members and tough kids. And they would look at me like I'm an outsider and I was this teacher and I had a polo shirt on. Then I realized I would talk a little bit about some music I listened to, or I would talk a little bit about a restaurant I went to around the corner. And the kids would be like, oh, you eat there too, Mr. A? And I'd be like, yeah. And it would be like, oh, so you're not a robot. You don't just go home and plug into the wall. Okay. So you have youth code, youth parents, and they come to you about playing time, but also one here specifically, the position. What if a parent comes to you and recommends a new position to you? How do you, are you okay with that? Is that, how would you handle that? For example, you got Johnny, he's been pitching and playing third base, but the dad or the mom comes to you and say, Hey, we'd really like to try outfield or catcher. How do you go about handling that? So again, I think that depends on, first of all, if you got a catcher and they want to catch, you know, what I would say is we can work with them in practice first, because you don't want to put them in a situation where they might fail. Because if they fail at something, they're they're probably going to lose some confidence and the team's going to lose some confidence in them. The other players may not lose, they may lose some confidence as well. So I think you have to, as a youth coach, give kids a chance to play other positions, but I think it starts in practice. If they just want to put their kid into a game for a few innings, you know, at the end of a game, well, let's look at the score, let's see the situation, let's look at how competitive we're trying to be in this particular situation. Is it more of a scrimmage? Is it more of a tournament? And you could probably get them in. I would just not do it until you have worked with them a little bit, until you have given them that chance in practice. Look, position's a big thing, and it's usually a big thing more for parents than it is for players. With parents, what I found was, and it, this happened at the high school level and also at the youth level, parents tend to look for the weakest kid. If the weakest kid's in left field, for example, then they're going to say that's the position my kid should play. Now, what they're doing is exactly what the coach is doing. They're evaluating the nine players on the field, and they're figuring out where their kid has a chance at more playing time. Mm -hmm. And whatever player is the weakest, there's the spot my kid needs to play. So I have that happen a lot too. Kid would be the backup shortstop, but then all of a sudden a parent would say, well, how about right field? And you have to just sort of step back and think about it for a minute. Now, why would they say right field? Oh, that's the kid that's hitting 120. Mm -hmm. So they're going to find the weakest spot because a lot of times it's not really about the position so much as it's about getting more opportunities. And there may be more opportunities because the shortstop may be the best player on the team, right? But that's yep. the coach's job. You know, the coach's mm-hmm. job is to look at the nine pieces in the puzzle, and I, I look at it like a puzzle. Look at the nine pieces in the puzzle, and your job is to move puzzle pieces where you think you can get the best nine on the field. You know this, but we had two really good shortstops at Woodbridge High School one year. Two guys that could easily play shortstop on just about every high school team in Orange County. And we had to decide before the season started who's going to be the shortstop. And we went with one who ended up getting a scholarship to Pepperdine, played Division One baseball. Mm-hmm. And the other one, we moved to second base. But we explained to that kid that it was probably better for them because they were going to be our number one pitcher. And they wouldn't be making as many throws from second base. And we did that for the benefit of the team. And the kid went to second base, and I don't think he made an error all year. You know, we had two shortstops, essentially, up the middle. And then when he pitched, he's the guy who took us to the CIF championship. You know, because you worked with him, he's the guy who was on the mound in the CIF championship game pitching this team in 2016 to a CIF championship. Now, the only person I think that ended up not being happy was the dad, you know, the parent, the parent of the kid who ended up moving to second base and being a pitcher. But ironically, that pitcher got a scholarship to Valderrama as a pitcher, right? not as a shortstop. I think we did the right 
right thing for the team that year. I think it ended up putting us in a CIF championship game. I think we did the right thing for both kids. One ended up being a pitcher in college, one ended up being a shortstop in college. But looking back, I don't know if we made everybody happy. When you really think about it, I don't know if the parents were 100% behind that decision, but I think it was the right decision. If we try to please all the parents as coaches, we're probably not going to please any of them or very few of them. And if you're trying to always appease them, it's not going to work out very well. I hear that coming from you. And I know that your experience and what you've shared with me over the years, that's the truth. And you're also another thing I think that all the listeners can take from this is Tim was very transparent with the players. So he makes this move. He moves the, he kind of says, all right, you're going to be our second baseman. And he explains and and the why behind it. Tim gave the why and how it's going to benefit the team and the player. And I've talked about this before on the podcast, Tim. That is when we give the why and we want to be transparent and honest, I do think that at the end of the day, the kids, the players do want to hear like, they want to hear a little bit about how it benefits them. They're all down. Most of them are, they should be down with the team and the cause behind helping the team. But, and if they're not, they probably shouldn't be on your team, but they also want to hear a little morsel of of something that a little, a little benefit to them as to how, and you did such a great job. And I remember that situation situation like it was yesterday and you sold it to the player and not sold it like you were telling them the truth but you got we have to sell players on the truth it's like education i've told my listeners I, they should teach teachers in the teaching prep class uh, courses the credentialing classes and if you're getting a degree in education they need to spend more time teaching teachers how to be better at selling because we're selling education and this is something that can impact their future more than just about everything and yet teachers don't do a great job i feel across the board and sometimes coaches of selling the why and you're I mean, if these companies out there can sell things nobody needs, well, why can't we sell benefits that can really actually truly benefit not just students, but the players? And I think you did an excellent job of giving. And I've been sharing that with the listeners. You want to get the why, and there should be a benefit. It should be a win, 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 a win for the player, a win for the team, a win for the coach. And also with the parent, you mentioned that uh, the only one who probably wasn't super, you know, 100% satisfied with the move was the dad. Right away, I remember t- coaching with you, and within like the first couple of months, you said, "Hey, you can't make them all happy, and if, if you try to make them all happy, the ship's just going to sink." Yeah, so. I think I think sometimes you know teachers and coaches tend to let their ego get in the way, and I think that's what it comes from. The teacher they got the degree from prestigious university that goes into the classroom and starts teaching science may not always be the best teacher, but they have the ego that oh, I went to this university, right? So you should all want to listen to me. And the same can be said for for coaches. You know, a lot of times, coaches might have played for this great coach or played you know at a high level of baseball, and and they sort of assume that all the kids are going to want to hear from them or listen to them because they played at a high level. So not all great baseball players end up being great coaches because sometimes they go into that job with the ego, right? And as a coach, I think you sometimes just have to sacrifice your own ego. But it's interesting because it's the same thing you're asking the kids to do. Like the kid who moved from shortstop to second base probably had some ego issues, right? And the parent might have had some ego issues. You're making that move for the benefit of the team. So sometimes as a coach, you have to also show that by example, right? Which is letting your ego go and sitting down with that kid and explain explaining the situation and why that move is going to work. Now, when you go to the CIF championship that year, right, and you hand that kid the ball and you put him on the mound. <laughs> sure helps. 
Yeah. I mean, it kind of validates everything that you decided earlier on, right? Now, that's not always going to happen. Don't get me wrong, but that was validation, right? Or even the fact that that kid got a scholarship as a pitcher. That yep. kind of validates that decision you made. And you're not always going to be right as a coach, but if you can be honest, and I think the key there is communication, how you communicate with the kid, it's going to benefit the team in the long run. Yeah. And that pitcher you're speaking of, he did an excellent job in that game. We, we, we went up against a top 20 team in the country. I want to say they finished and the, the coach for that team is a good friend of mine. In fact, I was just going through some old, my mom over the years had saved stuff in storage containers for me, just things, you know, kindergarten drawings to all my baseball and football and basketball and soccer things. And she had saved a bunch of it. Well, I came across some Long Beach State, well, quite a bit of Long Beach State stuff since I played four years there. And one of the pictures was of Coach Bomb Jeff Bombeck, who's down at the Rancho Bernardo High School, the success that he's had and, and how he does how he handles players and how he works with parents is very similar to the success and uh, relationships you've built with your players. One, anyways, I get the, I, I had a picture of his dad being kind of funny on, a, on a, and I reached out and said, Hey, I got this photo. I sent him. He's like, Hey man, can you send that to me? And so coach Bombeck was the coach of the team we played against you and I, we coached against, I guess. And uh, they finished in the top, geez, they finished in like the top, maybe 15 in the country. And, and, and our pitcher that you convert that you talked into being our main pitcher and maybe less of a role, you know, not being the shortstop, moving the second helping the team out. Had a heck of a game and a heck of a year. And I think he was the league MVP and all Orange County. And if, if you make the all county team, or if you're the Orange County coach of the year, like you were, you're not, there's not a much better place for baseball because of a couple of reasons. One, the, the weather facilitates baseball year round. Two, the economics in the area, you know, baseball that, you know, having bats and gloves is not really a big problem in Orange County. And then you have the density, you know, you have a lot of, a lot of high schools. And so if you can win in Orange County and you can play well in Orange County, you can do it just about anywhere. So uh, with that said, I did want to move to a question here. If what's one thing that kind of gets overlooked or overshadowed or that could really help a coach build a better relationship with parents or players? Is there something that kind of goes unnoticed, like a, a strategy or anything like that? I know we've covered it. Um, yeah. Transparency meetings. Yeah, I honestly think that there's just two different eras of coaches. I'm going to start mm -hmm. there. Okay, You have the era of the coaches you and I played for where there was no communication with, and that was intentional. They didn't want the parents to interfere with what they were doing on the field. And, you know, that era is just not going to work anymore. It did work in the 70s, in the 80s, probably even in the early 90s, because you were able to run a program and you really didn't rely on parents as much. I mean, you think mm -hmm. back, the parents were in the stands, but they never, ever got to come on the field and talk to the coach. And that distance worked well. But, you know, the thing today is there's a whole new era of coaching. And now as a coach, you're dependent on your parents and you're dependent on your players. You can't have success with distancing yourself anymore. Because if you distance yourself, they're going to go somewhere else. If they don't think that the coach is good for their kid, they're going to transfer. So, you know, you have to learn as a coach to build a relationship in the new era. And that's what I call it. So I learned from a coach, a coach that was from the old era. And then as I took over my program, I started off trying to distance myself and it didn't work. I alienated some of the parents. I probably created too much distance between some of the parents early on. And I had to sort of almost do a complete 180 and change my philosophy, change my approach. And once I did that,
that, the fundraising started coming in, the better assistant coaches started joining me. I would say that the most important thing that's overlooked is you have to welcome your parents. You have to welcome your players. You have to make them feel like they're a part of the process. And they are. They truly are integral. And once they buy in and once you have them, you need to continue to build those relationships. You have to, I guess the key word there that you've already said is sell them on what you're trying to do and get them to buy in. Now, my first year, the parents that bought in my first year as a head coach were the parents that were freshmen. The parents that didn't buy in were the parents that had seniors, Mm -hmm. right? They were only going to be with me one year. So the freshman parents bought in. They ended up being my biggest fundraisers. My very first year at Woodbridge, we went five and 21. I want to make that clear. We only won five games (laughs) with with that group of seniors. And there were a couple freshmen that I brought up that year to play and they ended up one of them ended up getting drafted um, when he was a senior so four years later he got drafted by the New York Mets there was another player who um, ended up going to University of San Diego on a baseball scholarship he was a freshman that joined us that year those kids when they were seniors we went to Dodger Stadium and I still remember the kids at the banquet coming up to me right they were freshmen when we went five and 21 and one kid said from five and 21 to a CIF championship in four years and we turned that program around in four years. And we did it because that group of freshman parents became allies. They became integral parts of building the program. And when you get that buy-in from those parents, a lot of times, if the parents buy in, the players buy in. And once you got the parents, now it's easier to get the kids because now the kids are like, hey, we're a part of something, right? My dad, instead of the dad coming home and bad-mouthing me, the dad's coming home and telling the kid, listen to your coach and do what your coach says. And so that's why it's so important that you have that buy I am with the parents. If the parents are coming home every day and talking bad about you or the coaches, it's going to be really hard to convince that kid to buy into what you're trying to do. That's why I think the new era coach has to look at things a little differently and you have to be a little better with with your parents and you have to get them to be sort of in the process. They're building the program with you, right? Mm -hmm. So that they can look back on the successes you had in high school with their son and they can fondly remember, you know, those times. Like I said, I don't think it was as necessary 20 years ago to have that sort of relationship. But I do think so, that that's the only way you're going to have success. All right, Coach Bo, back with you live. I'm going to stop the interview at that point, and we'll pick up part two next week. And along with part two next week, we're going to do something a little different, something new next week. So you'll definitely want to tune back in next Tuesday when the next episode is released. We'll be doing something that'll be sharing out a lot of strategies in one batch. Always great being here with all of you. Until next week, send me those emails, Bo at 8020baseball.com. Go to the website, 8020baseball.com. Get that drill design guide. Also, it's very easy to support the show. Use the link in the show summary. It's very easy to support it very quick. It's a a seamless process, very secure. And until next week, take care of yourselves, especially that health and keep doing what you're doing, taking care of your families and take this information that we discussed here today and use it out there on the field. Use it with your players, use it with your team and look forward to seeing you back next week. Adios. This has been the 8020 Baseball Masterclass. Take it to the field.